Take your Bibles out this morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, we've had a couple of our families this week to lose loved ones and a couple of uh, funeral services, and we want to pray for those families. One of the great mountain peak passages in the Bible that oftentimes we use at funerals would be 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. But I was noticing again this week as the chapter closes, it's so much more than that. In fact, you'll see this morning how Paul weaves together the doctrine of the resurrection to really admonish you and me that we need to be about the Lord's business because the resurrection changes everything. It's to change our current lives. It's to change our conduct and what we do each day with our labor, with our work. And so we're going to concentrate this morning on verse 58, the last verse in chapter 15. Uh, title of the message, Start a Christian Labor Movement. But we're going to back up and begin reading at verse 50 that we can see the uh, context. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful today for the good news of the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Lord, we thank you for that good news and what it means for our lives. For eternity, but also for the present. Because the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Lord, you have left us here for a purpose. That we are to labor for you that others might know. That others might see. That others might hear. And that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us that one day in heaven that Peoples from every nation and tribe will be gathered around the throne singing praise to God. And so we're to go to all people preaching the gospel, serving you. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that we have here that what is done in Jesus' name is never in vain. So much of our efforts are. But what we do for you is not in vain. Lord, remind some Christian of that here today. They might be discouraged in their Christian life. Perhaps they've been sowing the seed of the gospel and they've not been seeing immediate effects of that. And they're discouraged. They want to give up. 
Lord, give them strength today to press on. And for somebody here today who does not yet know Christ, Lord, as they hear my call to come to Christ, may they hear the call of the Holy Spirit knocking on their heart. May they come to you today in faith and repentance. And may they experience life change. Use my feeble words today for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get back into our text this morning out of 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to think with me a moment about a scene out of the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, we know in John chapter 13 that Jesus' public ministry is over. The public ministry except, of course, going to the cross. But Jesus' public ministry of doing his miracles and and, and telling parables that has occupied the first 12 chapters is now over and when you come to John chapter 13 you find Jesus in the upper room celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples and he is telling them last things that he wants them to remember before he leaves them. And of course you'll recall that scene, they've gathered around the table and they're celebrating that that Passover meal and the Lord's Supper is about to be instituted but they're gathered together in the room up there and according to the customs of the time, a servant in the room would have already washed the disciples' feet. Because they walked on dusty roads with sandals and so it was customary when you entered into a home, entered into a room before a meal, there would be somebody there to meet you and there would be a basin of water and a towel by the door and a servant in the house would wash your feet. It was a courtesy. Well, in the midst of the meal, nobody has done that service as of yet so the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus rises from supper and he girds his waist with a towel he takes that basin of water and he begins to wash the disciples feet I mean it's incredible that the Lord is doing this he's the master and yet he's taking on the lowly Uh, service, the lowly job of a bondservant washing feet. And of course Simon Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And, And the Lord says to Simon Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And Simon Peter says, then Lord, not my feet only, but my whole body. And the Lord says, that's not really necessary. And then Jesus goes on to give them the instruction there. He lays down the principles there. He says, you call me Lord and rightly so I'm your master. And we know that the servant is not greater than the master. If I've washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. You need to serve one another. You need to labor in your service for one another. And he, he says, he closes that section by saying, you will be blessed if you do this. Not simply blessed if you hear this or acknowledge this, but you will be blessed if you do this, if you serve. We know that the Christian life is to be a life of labor. The Christian life is to be a life of service. And we know as we carry out this life of service, we are confronted with many uh, dangers or many hindrances. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that we're engaged in spiritual warfare. We battle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Speaking there of the devil and demonic forces that try to hinder us as we labor, as we serve. There are other hindrances. For instance, there's the danger of false conversion. 
Easy believism has crept into many churches today. We give the impression that if you walk an aisle, say a quick prayer, fill out a card, you're in the kingdom. And yet there may be no real repentance of sin, no evidence of genuine conversion in the person's life. Consequently, the person goes throughout their Christian life with a false assurance of salvation. Their whole Christian life or so-called Christian life may be based on a false experience. And so they have no missionary zeal, no love for the lost, no love for the Word of God, and no love uh, for the things of God. Now even where true conversion does exist, there can develop complacency and apathy. Jesus said to a church in Revelation 2, he described that church as a church that was still busy in their labor for the Lord, but they had lost their first love. They were doing it all for the wrong reasons. They'd become complacent. And the Bible says, of course, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. In other words, that was a word to the Jews in the Old Testament. Woe to those who receive all the blessings of God, all the promises of God, and yet do nothing in their lives with those blessings. We know, of course, that Christianity gives us a hope and it gives us personal comfort. We readily acknowledge all of that. But folks, we've got to also recognize Christianity is meant to give us more than that. It is also meant to give us a calling, a ministry, and a purpose. And that is what Paul is writing about here in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He's pointing out the fact that we are now to live for God's purposes. Being new in Christ with a new life, a new hope, a new love means that we not only get heaven one day in the future, but it is to change our very lives right now. In one little verse, he describes what our conduct is to be. We see here that the Christian life is to be a life of labor. A life of labor. So again, when you look at the two spectrums in the Christian life, privilege and responsibility, what he's concentrating on here is the responsibility element. The privilege is we're redeemed in Christ. Now the responsibility, what is to flow out of that? And that's what I want us to look at. I want you to see three principles this morning that are laid down in this text. Number one, the gospel is the foundation of all Christian labor. The gospel is the foundation of all Christian labor. The gospel is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now Paul wants to point out for us in chapter 15 that there is a bodily resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead and you and I will be raised from the dead likewise. Notice how he begins verse 58. He says, therefore. Now when you see a therefore in the scripture, you need to ask what it's there for. In this case, it calls you back to what was just discussed. Paul has been discussing the resurrection. Everything Paul is about to say is based upon the validity of the resurrection. Back up to verse 1 with me in chapter 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Simon Peter, and then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We know that some were scoffing at the resurrection. And Paul lets them know right up front that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there would be some serious consequences to that belief. If there's no resurrection from the dead, some things would logically follow. And the first of those being that not even Christ would be raised if there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then that would mean that you and I are still in our sins. And so all of these things he wants to map out that logically flow out of their skepticism. Not only would Christ not be raised, not only would you still be in your sins, but he says your faith would be in vain. There would be no such thing as forgiveness of sins. There would be no such thing as eternal life. In fact, when you die, you simply die. The body goes in the grave. It decomposes. There would be no eternal life, no future whatsoever. And so if that's the case, why even have church? Why even do missions? In fact, it's an even stronger warning than that as he develops the thought in chapter 15. Any, uh, any Christian, any teacher, any preacher, any witness for Christ whatsoever would only be a false witness. For example, if there were no resurrection of the dead, then I would be up here this morning as nothing more than a liar, a false witness, and a fraud. And you likewise would be pretty pathetic because you got up and got ready, got dressed, and came to church this morning. But again, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why even bother? And so everything about ministry hinges on the foundation of the gospel. The gospel about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do in church hinges on that foundation of the gospel. Folks, the resurrection validated the word of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, we're going to Jerusalem. When I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be rejected and mocked and finally hung on a cross and crucified. But never fear because three days later, I will rise again. Well, if he didn't rise again, then his word would have been shown to have been false. Christ would have been a false witness. The resurrection validated not only the word of Christ, but the work of Christ. You see, his resurrection showed that the heavenly father had accepted the son's sacrifice. Isaiah 53 talks about that, that when he makes sacrifice of sin for us, the father will see it and be satisfied. And Paul in Romans 1.4 says that the Father has declared him to be the Son through the resurrection of the dead. And so we have the hope even now of being in Christ if we die, being raised because Christ was raised, because he was raised, we too shall be raised. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.8 he says we have this promise absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now in addition to that, we have the promise of a future glorified body. Look at verse 20 here. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What are first fruits? First fruits are a promise of more to come. Then look at verse 23. He says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then look over at verses 42 and 43. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
Then look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is, just as we've borne the image of the first man, Adam, he goes on to say here, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Jesus. And so he says, beginning in verse 50, Behold, I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Not everybody is going to die because there will be a generation alive when Jesus returns. But everybody will be changed. One day believers will get a new glorified body and the promise here is that that body will never die. And so there's a bodily resurrection to eternal life coming for those in Christ. There's a bodily resurrection to condemnation for those outside of Christ, but a resurrection unto life for those in Christ. And his whole point is that not only does that make a great deal of difference for our future, but it ought to make a great deal of difference for our present. His point here is that the gospel is the foundation of everything we do as Christians. And again, the gospel, let's be clear on what it is. It is is the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that in Christ God has paid the penalty of your sin and my sin. The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. And it's the basis of everything we do in church. Now I emphasize all this for a reason right up front. I mean you would think this is nothing more than just basic Christianity 101 and that it's foundational. But sadly we see in a lot of places in the world today... Uh, what's being passed off as Christian labor or ministry and it's really not. Some bodies of believers or so-called believers have for all practical purposes have forsaken the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've forsaken the gospel. Even some so-called Christian bodies have done this and started doing merely humanitarian work. Now, as we'll see in a minute, social and humanitarian work is something that grows out of the gospel, but it cannot replace the gospel. And that is why I've said to some of our groups going out to leave on a mission trip that one thing we absolutely have to do on a mission trip is that we have to speak the gospel we have to share the gospel we have to sow the seed of the word of God along with whatever else we do otherwise it's just a humanitarian trip and again there's a place for humanitarian trips there's a place for social work but again those things cannot replace the gospel for something to be called a mission it has to contain the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ And anything we do in a church is based on that foundation. Because without the message, without the basic Christian message, you and I have nothing to build our lives upon. Our lives would be built just upon sinking sand. Our ministry would be built upon sinking sand without the truth of the gospel. And so the gospel is foundational. Now second principle that I want you to see is that ministry is the natural outworking of biblical faith. Ministry is the natural outworking of biblical faith. Again, Paul is making the argument here that ministry flows out of everything that he's just written about. Ministry is the natural outflow or outworking of the gospel. That's his point here in verse 58. 
Now, what I want to do, I don't want to confuse you here, but I want to read some other passages in the New Testament that essentially just remind us of the same thing. And after I read these other passages, I'll come back and just clarify the common theme that they all have. The first uh, scripture I want to read is out of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Folks, we need to understand that there's a faith to keep and a course to finish. There's a race to run. Hebrews 12 talks about that. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a race to run. A faith to keep, a course to run, a race to run. And furthermore, we need to understand that the Christian life is not a call to an easy chair, but to a plow. Jesus himself said in Luke 9, uh, when a young man came up to him saying, I will follow you, Lord, anywhere you go, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then maybe the most famous passage in the New Testament that points out how ministry has got to flow out uh, of the gospel would be that passage in James chapter 2 about faith and works where James sets up that scenario. Somebody comes to your door and knocks and they're, they're naked or hungry and you recognize their need but you do nothing. You simply say to them, go and be well fed and, and warm. God bless you and you do nothing to help them. James asks the question, what kind of faith is that? What kind of faith is that? All of these passages have a common theme and that is that biblical faith is to change the way that we live our lives. Biblical faith changes a man or a woman. Something is supposed to flow out of us and that something is fruitfulness and ministry. True conversion is not something that fits over in some nice little neat corner of our lives in a box and Sunday rolls around and we walk over to that little corner, we get that box out and we open it up for Sunday and then we take it and we set it aside again. The Bible points out that conversion changes a man. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. This radical change is possible because the living Lord Jesus who was raised from the dead comes to live in your life and my life through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now again for emphasis, if there were no resurrection, if there were, if there were no resurrection there would be no conversion, no new life, no transformation, no further reward, then what purpose would there be in serving Christ? There would be no purpose. But Paul's point here is that because of the resurrection there is purpose. There is an eternity. There is a judgment. There is a resurrection body. There is reward in heaven. And all of that encourages us towards something and that's what he's discussing here. We are to be absorbed in the work of the Lord. That's his point. Because Jesus Christ lives and there's a heaven and a hell. There's a resurrection to life, a resurrection to death. There, because all of this in the gospel is so real, you and I have a glorious message to proclaim to a lost and a dying world. And that message is that they can experience the transformation of life that Jesus brings. We are to be absorbed in the work of the Lord. The Greek word for work here in verse 58 even carries with it the idea of fatigue or exhaustion. Folks, where did we get the idea that in salvation only something one way happens? God just gives me something. 
I get forgiveness. I get peace and love and joy. And then I just ride out my time on this earth doing my own thing until I get to heaven one day. And so in the meantime, I can receive all these things from God and then just go about my business. And sadly, that's what we hear so much of today. It is a false gospel. It's the image that God is this cosmic granddaddy and he gives everything to you that you want and meanwhile you and I just go about our own business as though nothing has ever happened. And every now and then when we need granddaddy to give us something new or a pat on the back, we go back to church, we get that pat on the back and then we just go back to whatever we want to do the way we want to do it. It's a false gospel. It's a narcissistic way of looking at life. It's the way of looking at life. God is there just for me. God is there to build me up. God is there to meet all of my needs. The only reason God exists is for me so he can make me happy. But the problem is you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Yes, God reconciles you to himself through the cross. Only he can do that. He gives you peace. He gives you joy in the presence of God. He gives you reconciliation. He gives you a new life. You're a new creation in Christ. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so in conversion, we need to understand that we go from me to him. My life now is to be all about him and giving him glory. And Paul is saying the way we do that in the Christian life here, one of the ways we do the outworking of the gospel as we labor, as we serve the Lord, our lives become about His business and about Him. We're giving Him glory through that. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament at the call of Levi. Levi was that tax collector. And the Lord came along and said, Levi, come and follow me. And the Bible says he got up from his tax collector's booth and he followed Jesus. James and John were fishermen with their, with their father and he said come and I will teach you to be fishers of men and the Bible says they forsook the boat and their nets and they followed Jesus there was Paul on the road to Damascus when God got a hold of him and converted him he said I want you to go and, 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 and you're going to learn the great things that you're going to have to suffer for my name's sake in each case in the New Testament, it was a call to lose yourself and live for God's purposes. To pick up your cross and follow after Him. And nobody had to force them to do that. They wanted to do that because they had a new life, a new heart. They had new passions. And so their lives were consumed with following Christ. And Paul is simply saying to us here, that's what the Christian life is to look like. Ministry is to flow as the natural outworking of biblical faith. And notice how he says this work is, is to be described, what it looks like. He says, first of all, be steadfast, be unmovable. Be firm and settled in your conviction. Steadfast refers to being settled. It comes from a word that means literally to take a seat. Be firmly settled in your convictions. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Folks, I think this is so important because if somebody is not really settled in their convictions yet, then that's going to affect how they serve. I mean, you're not going to serve wholeheartedly if you don't even know what you believe and you're not even settled in your own convictions yet. I mean, think about it. Why would I go to the mission field? Why would you go to the mission field? Why would you serve in the local church if you're not even really sure of what you believe and why. 
We've got to be settled. We've got to be steadfast. We've got to be unmovable. Today, more than ever, the younger generations coming along need to be settled, need to be steadfast and immovable because never before has the Christian message, at least in America, had to start from the bottom, so to speak. You see, folks, in just about all previous generations, Christianity was the default religion in America. From the founding of our country, men and women fought for religious freedoms and liberty, and the Bible was at the very center of society and government, in schools, in the marketplace. And even if the danger in being the default religion meant that complacency could easily set in, nonetheless, the Christian message was the accepted message but not necessarily so anymore now Christianity has to fight for its right even to be public I think of one Christian group in Dearborn, Michigan Dearborn, Michigan has a huge Muslim population and every year they have this big Islamic festival some Christians set up a booth inside to give out literature and to talk to people about Christ they were run out by the authorities they set up their booth outside and decided they weren't going to debate or they weren't going to say uh, verbal stuff anymore they were just going to simply on the street corners Hand out Christian literature. The authorities came and made them leave. Finally, they were told if they wanted to give out copies of the Gospel of John, they had to go at least five blocks away and stand on the street corner. Now, some pastors in the area, some groups have said they could, they could be more effective by befriending people in the Muslim uh, population and, and sharing their testimony and introducing them to Christ that way. But none the, nonetheless, that group has said, America, think about this. We had to fight for our right to even stand on a street corner without saying a word and even pass out Christian literature. It took them three years in court to win that battle what am I saying what I'm saying is we've taken a fall in society in this regard there's been a massive cultural shift and so as never before believers have got to be settled in what they believe Peter said, be ready to give a defense of the hope that you have within you. Well, to do that, you're going to have to become a student of the Bible. Again, so basic. Reading and studying this. And we've got so, we're so blessed today. So many resources at our fingertips now that we can learn more about the Word of God. And we need to be taking the opportunity to do that, getting ourselves more and more grounded because, again, these generations that we're trying to reach out to and win now, we're going to have to know more than just John 3.16. Nothing can replace John 3.16. Don't get me wrong. Nothing can replace Scripture. But we're also going to have to know how to talk to people and be grounded in our faith and how, why we believe what we do. And we're going to have to enter into conversations with people and just be grounded. That's why one step Kevin's taking all the youth in Ukraine. He wants to see. He's he's gonna supply them with with study Bibles, so they can begin studying the Scripture more in depth. We need, to, we need to think of ways in our own Christian life to do that. What steps do you and I need to take in our life to become more grounded in our faith so that we can be steadfast and immovable, settled in our convictions? That's how we're to do ministry. Ministries to flow out of the gospel and it is to be ministry where we are settled on our convictions. But notice another word that he uses to describe our ministry. He says that we're to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding. The idea of abounding is that we do more than just the basic requirements. Have you ever met anybody in your life that all they cared about was just doing the bare minimum to get by? 
I used to hate that in school with group projects. I wanted to make an A. Sometimes I'd be teamed up with people. If a 69 was failing and a 70 was passing, there'd be people in my group that were just as happy as a lark with a 70. I wanted to make an A. And so you know what they do? They let you do everything, right? They just kind of coast and they just do the bare minimum to get by. And, and Paul says that is how we are not to be in our Christian service for the Lord. We're not to have the attitude, what's the bare minimum that I can do? Now folks, please don't misunderstand The gospel is not a work salvation. We are saved by grace through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Next verse though to that passage in Ephesians 2.10 says, Once we're saved by grace, what do we become then? We become His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You see the order there? Salvation is by grace. Good works are never the root of salvation. Good works are the fruit of salvation. Being saved by grace, now we're to labor for the Lord. And Paul says we're to do it in an idea that is abounding. The idea is overflow. It was used of creeks or streams that had risen up. The floodwaters had come and and the stream was now abounding. It had gotten out of its banks and flooded the surrounding area. That's the word picture behind this word here, abounding. And so that's how Paul is saying you and I are to be in our service for the Lord. We're not to try to measure it out in stingy small doses, but we are out of a heart of gratitude because of what God has done, saving me from a life of sin and an eternity in hell because of what God has accomplished on my behalf, giving me salvation and peace and joy and reconciliation with God. Out of that heart of gratitude, I'm to serve Him in an overflowing way abounding in our work for the Lord. Because as he points out in Ephesians 1, that's how God's grace has come to us. God's grace didn't come to us in little measured out stingy doses, but His grace towards us was abounding, so now our labor towards Him is to be abounding. We're to abound in prayer, We're to abound in ministry. We're to abound in the work of the Great Commission. Folks, it is no accident whatsoever that the Christian life in the New Testament is compared to the life of a farmer. My first church out of seminary was in a farming community. Bedroom community to Roanoke, Virginia. Half the people in our church seemed that they drove in to to the banks and financial institutions and institutions of higher learning and so forth in Roanoke and the rest of the people left and went out down their driveways to their barn and worked their farms. Very unique blend in the church. And I can tell you, I don't know of anybody that is harder working than a farmer. I mean, they... they prepare their soil, they plant the seed, they water it, they fertilize it, and they patiently wait for the harvest. When the harvest comes along, their work begins all over again. And all year long, there's different things that a farmer is doing. It's not just doing during the growing season. All year long, from sunup to sundown, you could find the farmers and their sons out in the fields working their farm diligent labor. The New Testament compares the Christian worker to a farmer. 
What motivation does a farmer have? The harvest. What's our motivation? The harvest. And the fact that we're going to see the Lord one day, we're going to have a brand new body, we're going to be rewarded. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, they would be his crown and ground of rejoicing before the Lord one day when as believers we're home together with those that we've impacted. And so we live now preparing for them. In other words, don't live just to get by. Abound in the work of the Lord. You work for the Lord as an outgrowth of the foundation of the gospel. As you work for the Lord, you do so with settled convictions and an overflowing way. Third thing I want you to see though, third principle, Christian ministry and labor is not without It's benefits. He says there at the end of verse 58, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now folks, think with me a minute about life. Let's be honest a minute. So much of our lives we would have to admit if we really look at a lot of our work in light of eternity. A lot of it is in vain. A lot of what we do as we get up, go about the course of our day, a lot of what we do has little eternal value. Bible says we need to redeem the time, make the most of our opportunities because the days are evil. We need to look at what we're doing with our lives. But what the Bible is telling us here is whatever we do for God is not in vain. Here's some Sunday school teacher every week prepares his or her lesson diligently. Gets up, teaches that lesson, doesn't see an immediate impact right away. Might conclude that everything they're doing is in vain. Not so. If nothing else in the eyes of the Lord, it's not in vain. Amen? Whatever I do for me is in vain. Whatever I do for Him is not. The Bible points out that God remembers our labor. Remember that story in the Gospels about the woman who came in with the, the, uh, the jar, the flask of precious ointment and she broke that and she poured it on the feet of of the Lord Jesus and and wiped his feet with her hair and some of the disciples said why'd she do that that ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor and Jesus said leave her alone she's done a great act she's anointed my body for burial and wherever this gospel is preached what she's done will be remembered That little act of service done to the Lord, done for the Lord, was not in vain. The passage about the sheep and the goats. Jesus said to the sheep, Enter in. You visited me in prison. You fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. And they said, Lord, when did we ever do that? They didn't even, they weren't even aware of when they'd done that. He said, Whenever you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. God remembers our labor. Others may not. Others may not always appreciate what you do in Christ's name. But guess what? He does. And He's our audience anyway in Christian service, right? Not only does He remember, but He rewards. There are at least five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. The incorruptible crown. The crown of life. The crown of righteousness. The crown of glory. And the crown of rejoicing. You see there's a future reward. Benefits that are out of this world. God doesn't forget. Folks we labor for the Lord. We are to labor for the Lord as believers. On this labor day weekend. 
I want to ask you this morning, are you laboring for King Jesus? Are you laboring for Him? May all of your labor be based on the foundation of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a glorious message you and I have to proclaim. It's the message that people need to hear. This world is not going to have peace apart from the Prince of Peace. And that's Jesus. Labor for Him. Think about your labor this morning. Do you measure it in small doses? Are you just trying to do the least that you can get away with? Serve Him out of an overflowing heart of gratitude. Say, God, help me to serve that way. Just out of the gratitude when I behold what you've done for me, not to serve as somebody who has to be coaxed or can, uh, persuaded in some way, the arm twisted, but just naturally out of a heart of gratitude you serve Christ. And don't forget the greatest work of all that's ever been done. Some 2,000 years ago, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where the just died for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Have you come to Christ? Have you acknowledged His work in your behalf? If not, I want to invite you to come forward this morning and say, Pastor, I need to acknowledge His work in my life. I need to be saved. I need to be born again. Maybe others that want to come forward and say, Pastor, I want to labor for the Lord and I also recognize in the Bible that we labor together as brothers and sisters. We need each other. And so somebody might be here thinking, I need a church home. You come forward as well in the time of invitation. We'd love to be your church home where we can link arm in arm with you and be about the Lord's business. Maybe some Christians want to come to this altar and say, Lord... I want gratitude. I want gratitude to be the basis out of which I serve you. I want my heart to overflow in service to you. So change my attitude every day. Help me to labor out of a heart of gratitude over the great things that you've done for me.